What is wealth? How do communities collectively define value? What sustains us as individuals? What sources of sustenance are we disconnected from? And thinking about those ideas, where are the leverage points where we can create change in our own lives and of those around us? Those are the questions that I, along with my guests Warren Brush and Jesse Peterson, examine today in episode 1712 of the Permaculture Podcast, What Sustains You. That title for this show comes from what Warren sees in the world, that as life transitions more to a digital space of screens and instantaneous communication and a feeling of connection, that we're becoming incrementally more disconnected from the natural world, from our food sources, from each other, and as I think about it in some ways, what makes us human. The conversation today opens and is rooted within American politics and what happened since the presidential election in November, and what Jesse and I have observed through our respective permaculture networks. And then we move to Warren and his work internationally. We get some up-to-date ideas from him and what he's experiencing during his time in Ethiopia, where he joined us from for this interview. And this show is a bit longer than you might normally expect as the conversation itself runs over an hour as we go through a number of places of interest for anyone interested in social or political permaculture. And as we get started with that, a quick reminder that our friends from Spiral Ridge Permaculture are offering a spring permaculture design course that begins on May 18th at their farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Find out more about that via the links in the show notes. And if you decide to sign up, you can save $100 by using the promo code MAN, M-A-N-N. Let's get into that conversation with Jesse and Warren, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then Jesse and Warren, I'd like to thank both of you for joining me again, and it's interesting to have you both here with me today in this group conversation to talk about what we're seeing within the changing geopolitical climate and also our national experiences here in the United States with the election of President Trump and what that's leading to in our current conversations, and then also to look at how all of that is kind of coming together in both our local and global permaculture work and the impacts that all of this is having. So, Jesse, Warren, could each of you give us a bit about where you are in the world, what you're experiencing, and we can take the conversation from there. Looking back prior to November 2016, There was a lot of chatter, conversation happening, as far as I could see on Facebook, within the permaculture world. And I think that, for me, represents one subsector of my culture, my professional culture, my personal culture. And then there were different conversations happening in other areas of my professional and life culture. So I live in Helena, Montana. We are a red state, but Helena itself is largely progressive in terms of how it votes. It tends to be more blue, along with some of the other more urban, dense cities in Montana. And I also am involved with a lot of local politics in my community. And at the same time, I'm different from a lot of my friends who are involved with progressive politics in so much as I'm also practicing permaculture. And a couple of the ways that I'm doing that, number one, I have a urban homestead where I am working with systems thinking and cycles of life and um, having my waste be the food for what's going on in my you know, zone one through five in my on my 8,000 square foot footprint. And so I'm doing meat rabbits, I'm doing chickens, I have a perennial medicinal garden and also some annual plants for food and um, have water capture systems. And, and at the same time, recognize that my small footprint that I am attempting to be regenerative is not necessarily the be-all and end-all answer for what we need in the world, or, or maybe it is, but like, how does that idea expand enough in my community and in time? And so I think I'm thinking about that in a different way than some of my friends or colleagues who are in standard 
political, like progressive political action groups who are working on poverty, who are working on watershed organizing, who are working on reproductive health care rights, economic justice issues, diversity issues. And so I tend to walk between these or view these different perspectives kind of by walking between them. So in leading up to November, I was I was getting all these different perspectives. And I think uh, it was interesting within the permaculture world to observe, you know, some people I think really wanted there to be this falling apart of everything. And we're very much against the idea that there would be a conventional candidate that would win. So there was a lot of support for Bernie Sanders early on, I noticed in the permaculture community, and a lot of support for the Green candidate, a lot of support for various uh, libertarian candidates. And then as that pool got smaller, I was surprised actually at some of the leaders within our permaculture community who had supported Bernie and then basically, I think, felt a little bit lost when he lost the primary and were really against supporting Hillary Clinton because of her, you know, neoliberal and hawkish policymaking. They saw her as a part of the establishment, as being supported by Wall Street, as, you know, not bringing about change that we wanted to see. And then being a little bit lost, like probably some people did end up going for Trump, uh, maybe hoping that he didn't represent establishment. He represents really visually and rhetorically like what a lot of people were thinking underneath it all and sort of hiding, which we would have not seen as well if a Hillary Clinton would have been elected or even a, you know, a more mainstream Republican candidate. And, you know, and then I saw the the Johnson supporters um, and I saw, I'm forgetting the Green Party candidate right now, Jill Stein. And I, I saw our community within permaculture kind of fall apart a little bit in terms of what to do. And then I, and some people were saying, well, let's just let it fall apart and then we'll, we'll build it back up together. And some of us have our homestead, so we'll all be fine. Or like our state will be fine because we've like got all this local food thing going. And then people infighting a little bit about privilege and, you know, who's already got their hundred acres they've been working on and how many people don't. And then some permaculture practitioners I saw going, well, I'm just going to leave the country and get out of here and go somewhere else. And like in the the more mainstream political groups that I'm a part of here in Helena, outside of my own permaculture practice, I saw some like more standard debates, you know, of how much, you know, once Bernie was out of the running, then the Clinton-Trump discussion and, you know, how many particularly women, were very concerned about policies that, you know, Trump would not adhere to or abide by that were supportive of, like, equality for women. And certainly the issue with minorities and immigrants and maybe some of the perceptions of racism from those who were really excited about Trump and and also how he got his crowds to be so excited about these stereotypes in certain instances, and that Hillary Clinton had been this staunch supporter of women, and yet she was a hawk, and, you know, this, uh, and kind of a lack of acknowledgement by folks who really were wanting to see women uplifted and seen in positions of power, maybe ignoring the hawkish aspects of her. So just a very divisive campaign time. And then when Trump won, I saw this incredible almost breakdown with, you know, so many people feeling lots of different things about it, but certainly a lot of people in the permaculture world going, all right, well, this is it. You know, whether they liked, they are excited about Trump being president or whether they thought it was, you know, the beginning of the apocalypse, or maybe they were excited because it was bringing the apocalypse. It was so interesting, our permaculture ecology at work chewing on this and having these discussions about like, okay, what's next? What does this mean? And so I got really interested in having this discussion, you know, and we're going to, we've invited Warren to come and co-teach a permaculture course with us here in Montana this summer. And Warren's doing all this global work. I think what's happening here is an issue globally. And I just, I'd really love to talk about this with both you, Scott, you have your perspective. I think you hear a lot of different information. Warren, I think 
you know, you're working locally, you're also working abroad, and very intensely, I think, in both contexts. I'd like to jump in here real quick because of the way that you framed this, and it is different, the experience that I've had with this, because within... You know, my Facebook feed, I kind of limit my friends to people who I know, and my non-permaculture friends tend to be more progressive, and so that they kind of saw this as the coming of the end, if you will, for many of them. But when it comes to the permaculture side of things, I come from a more conservative background, having been part of the disaster preparedness movement, the homesteading movement, back to the land, and things like that in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so as a result of that, much of the audience who I'm in touch with through the podcast tend to be more conservative, more libertarian, as well as to have a pretty big anarchistic streak, especially combined with the local rewilding community here in Pennsylvania. Anarchism tends to be more towards where they fall. And so that's where I'm seeing a lot of this conversation and that with the rise of nationalism in Europe and what we have going on in the United States, there are a lot of folks who I'm in touch with who just kind of threw their hands up in the air and they didn't care whether Bernie or Hillary or Jill Stein or Gary Johnson or Donald Trump were elected. They all kind of felt, well, whatever happens, we're screwed. So we're just going to hunker down. And that seems to be where the push has been with the folks who I'm in touch with has been towards let's find our local community. Let's work really locally, and then wherever the chips fall, let them land where they may. But I'm wondering, Warren, with where you are and the international reach that you have between Quail Springs and all the students you see throughout the year, plus your travel, what have you been experiencing within the world? Thank you, Scott and Jesse. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. I'm, I'm uh, talking from Addis Ababa, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And uh, just this morning, I was on a rather bumpy ride in a Toyota Land Cruiser coming from the south of Ethiopia with a wonderful man who uh, is from one of the 82 tribes here in Ethiopia who was sharing, you know, with me about his story and his life and of course the question came up the question the big t question he said what do you think about him you know uh, president trump and we had this really interesting conversation about what we were you know just perspectives and uh, his name is zier and zier was saying that you know he he also didn't like obama because of some things that obama did and he also he said it's it's hard to really know from their perspective, how a president is going to affect them here in, in a country so far away. But he did say that the whole country is very concerned about the aid that does come in that is uh, very, I think, used in a very valid way and an important way to help to help kind of counter the displacements that have happened because of westernization and the loss of cultures that have been sustainable and regenerative for i would say over you know hundreds of thousands of years and uh, not just tens of thousands of years and and a lot of the repercussions of westernization are are hitting places like northern ethiopia and southern ethiopia and so it was interesting because at the very end of the conversation he came around and he said but you know what you don't have to worry about it because in four years you can just get rid of him. And then he went on to say that, you know, they've been living under a dictatorship for, you know, a generation. And just uh, recently they, were, they had peaceful protest where the government came in and gunned down 3,000 unarmed people who were protesting the government's way of, of how it doesn't listen to the people. And, and he said, you know, we don't have that opportunity in four years. We just don't have it. And I, I was really humbled by that because I, I realized that even in the, you know, as dark as it may seem for some and, and just that feeling of maybe, you know, having a presidency that can have, you know, huge repercussions on human rights and, and on just, just how we have respect in our country we have an opportunity to make a change. And, and I, I really was appreciating that and, and appreciating hearing that. I think it was interesting, you know, hearing from the both of you about just the perspective of watching what's being spoken within different kind of areas within the permaculture world. And I actually don't follow any threads in the permaculture world on the internet. I just don't have time. And I, I do put out 
what I'm doing to see if there's things that I'm doing that could inspire, help other people. But I, I don't get into conversations other than if I'm face to face and or if I'm talking on the phone. Like I, I, I have this concern about how uh, so much of how we perceive now people comes from dialogue on Facebook and, and Instagram and um, other forms of media that truncate the beauty of our language even more than what happens when we talk. And, and so I have this, uh, hopefully, a, diff- a perspective that might not really represent the permaculture movement, yet I'm someone who is actively using permaculture, des- the design science and the design methodologies to create uh, leverage points for change on the ground. And I feel for me, that has been my saving grace is what are we doing on the ground? How are we not, not just working with the landscape, but also the humanscape? And, and how are we doing it in a way that, that recognizes the patterns that are, that are prevalent right now? And I think being permaculturist, we have to look at the patterns. You know, how is it that someone with the ethics of Trump got into office in a country that has touted being, you know, a country of forward thinking and of decency and, you know, many other things that have to do with respect and and integrity. And yet here it is, we've now have an elected official who touts that he's, he's opposite of that in a lot of ways. And for me as a permaculturist, I have to go back to the patterns. What are the patterns that informed those votes? What are the patterns that led people to say they want, they want this human being to represent them in the leadership of kind of the nationalistic state of America? And I, I start to think, you know, when I look at a lot of research that's out there around what forms our worldviews, and I think it's really important for us to understand how is it that people's worldviews were formed in a way that said we would vote for this man to be the, to represent us. And when you study worldview formation, what you find is that there's two prominent influences that create our worldviews. And I, I really agree with this, and I've really sat with this, I've really looked for it. And those two things are, what is our sensory input? What is our senses, our sensory apparatus? What is touching it? What is, uh, you know, what are the feelings of all of our senses experiencing in the world around us? And then what is our mind focus? So think about that. If our sensory input is um, living within a, a house that is, you know, four walls and all the doorways are measured to the same distance so that you know you can walk through without even thinking, you don't even have to think how you walk through, all the floors are flat, all the stairs are measured to certain to certain lengths. You have people who have withdrawn away from the natural world into a world that's very engineered. So you have this sensory input that has less diversity, that has less relationship in it than you would have if you had a life that was exposed more to the world that's natural and that has myriad diversity. So you find that there's a change that starts to happen in people's worldviews when they have that kind of sensory input day in, day out, um, even for a lifetime. And then you start to see what are people focusing their minds on? And you start to see the news. You start to see that in America, even, you know, you look at at the news agencies like Fox News, which are just promoting fear and promoting self-interest and promoting this idea that, you know, everything's a crisis, that we have to live in crisis mode all the time. And nature doesn't always do that. Yes, there's crisis, but nature is not always in crisis. It would suffer too much from it. But yet nature needs crisis. That's the thing that that we forget is that, you know, evolution comes from disturbances. So as we start to look at what are people focusing on, people are sitting in front of the televisions. They're looking at screens. We're in the screen generation right now. There's so much that's being fed around fear. And I realized that that magical mix of patterning of having a diminished set of sensory inputs that are happening along with this uh, unhealthy foods and all these different things that are that are affecting us, I think, physiologically, 
coupled with the fear that keeps coming into people and the self-interest and this idea that money is and the GDP is our, is our ultimate goal of wealth, of what we define as wealth. And you start to realize that, that it becomes a toxic cocktail um, politically and how people's worldviews then play out in the world around them. So as a permaculturist, I'm all about patterns, not judging them. That's the important thing is not judging them. But looking and saying, how can I create a succession process? How can I work with successionary processes to help move this along so that the people and the landscapes around us move into more balance and equilibrium? Because ultimately, that's the goal. And I think we can't do it from the top down. I don't think it's a nationalist movement. And so when you start to see these local these local movements like transition towns that I feel like that is where the relationship based changes start to happen in the pattern where you start to get people coming out like a city repair in Portland where they're saying, let's get out of our houses and let's go create intersections where we can live together in a beautiful way. We can share books. We can have tea. We're going to create intersections that are about the, the foment of relationship. And it's changed how places like Portland have become some of the fastest growing economies in the in the country because they're actually basing it on local relationships. So I, I'm kind of going off in different directions, but I start to realize sitting here in Ethiopia that everything is relationship-based here. You have this greater tribal factions, 82 tribes that are in the area that are all based on relationship to landscape. Every one of these languages developed in response to how you live in the in the landscape you have then family units and sub family units within these tribes that speak about like literally they speak about if you do not know your neighbors well you will not survive in ethiopia you need to know your neighbors you need to know the land you need to know how to live on the land and if you don't have that you won't survive and i think Americans have really gotten far away from that. We've, I, I like to say that we've kind of we've moved away from our relationship with that which sustains us to actually suckling from the global nipple. And we're literally now gathering all the things we need in our life for, for sustenance from places in which we no longer have a relationship. And I believe that has to directly affect why Trump was brought into power. I really believe that. I believe this pattern playing out has led up to this. So I think it'd be interesting for this conversation to really think of, well, how can we help the succession process move towards that balance and equilibrium or stability and resilience that I think all natural systems want to uh, exist within? But what I follow from that to kind of encapsulate a little, Warren, is that there's a combination of a disconnect not only from other people, but also from the natural world. And in that process, that it's our our interdependence and our relationships that are breaking down, that those are the patterns that you're seeing, and that it's finding a way to restore those are where we can move past some of these rising problems and issues. Do I f- follow that correctly in that little kind of short bite? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I had a, an elder who's passed from the Iroquois nation, the Haudenosaunee people, who used to say that if, when you start to lose your culture, you, you need more laws. So you can tell the state of a culture by the number of laws that any given politic has. And, and I say that because my definition of where intact culture comes from is that it comes from a group of people who knows where all that sustains them comes from, and they honor those things deeply. So it is about relationship to place in one another. Culture, literally, I believe, is never lost. It just goes back into hiding, waiting for the right germination conditions. It exists in the landscape, and that's not esoteric. It's actually very practical. And those of you who are involved in local sustenance, uh, like gaining local sustenance and being a part of like the, the localization movement of our food, and you'll start to realize that a culture comes out of that relationship. So imagine if you're a group of people living where you are. You're in Pennsylvania, Scott. Is that where you're at? Yes. 
So you're in Pennsylvania. Now imagine in your valley where you live, in the watershed in which you live, and, and mostly political lines indigenously followed watersheds. So you had this, this relationship with the landscape. Imagine if all the people in your watershed started to gain all their sustenance from only that watershed and that you were in an honorable relationship. Now, that's a whole other maybe talk show that could be done is what is an honorable relationship with that which sustains you. But that it means that you know how to tend it in a way where it, it, it's, it's life-giving and it's, it's something that regenerates and produces more than what you consume. You know, imagine everybody in your valley doing this. You're going to start to have a unique f- cultural food footprint that's like nowhere else in the world because of your climate, because of your soils, because of your hydrology, um, because of, you know, your skill sets amongst your seed savers. You know, all of these things are going to create a unique food culture that will be different than if you head over into Vermont or, or you're and they're going to have a different food culture. Now imagine if your clothing was all gathered from there, you would have a unique look because your cloth or your skins would be dyed with local plants that aren't found everywhere else. And so you start to see that cultures around the world were an expression of a landscape. And so I... I'm really hopeful that the localization movements are the first step in reclaiming cultures that actually give us stability so that we don't have to rely so much on the national politic to meet our needs of safety and security. And I think that's where we start to see people really collapsing is that if you're, if you're really only in relationship with a supermarket where you don't know where the next layer of the sustenance is coming from, you are very vulnerable to, you know, whatever the national politics have to say because they set pricing, they set the regulations, the imports, who, who can do what in the, national, in the international context. So you start to see a vulnerability come out because of, national, of globalization. And so I just, I, my hope is, is that it's not about being independent like i think independence you know honestly i don't believe there is such a thing as independence now i'm gonna let that sit maybe there's some hairs on the back of the necks of some of your listeners who are going what is he talking about no such thing as independence so what let me qualify that is that i believe and i can see it from a scientific standpoint that every single thing is connected through a web of life you cannot extract yourself from the web of life by just saying you're independent. So you can make any decision you want, move in that web of life as if it's not even there. You can't extract yourself from that which sustains you. Even if you're not in relationship with it, it's still coming from an ecology somewhere around the world. You are inextricably a part of a web of life. Again, that's not esoteric. That is science. And and science has confirmed this. It tells us this. And common sense tells us that as well. So when you start to think of, as you, if you think of yourself as independent and you start to move in that web as an independent being rather than recognizing the relationships of the connections that you're in there, you're in there with, that you're being held by, you start to you start to move in a way that's toxic because of the unknowing to the connections around you that are actually supporting you. And I hope that's coming through what I'm trying to say. It just it's it really we have to get to the root of why is it that people are so it's like the national politics have so much weight right now because of globalization. I really believe that. So it's not to say, yeah, let's abandon it, let's just give up and let's go to our local, um, but I feel like the bigger pattern is, is that people don't understand how to tend to that which sustains them because they're not in a relationship with it. They no longer have it. They no longer have a culture that teaches them how to do it in a regenerative and sustainable way. And so there's this fear that comes, this deep, deep fear of survival that I think is playing out in our political scene right now in a lot of westernized countries. Warren, in relation to what you're saying, and I'm so, yeah, it's wonderful to hear this perspective. My background, which listeners of this podcast, I won't go into too deeply because we've talked about it in past podcasts. My background is in initially in psychology and then in 
macroeconomic trade or global economics. So really, it's exciting to hear about globalism. And I do think it has, it plays a major role in how, like we feel on the ground in our communities day to day, moment to moment. So my head is like, is racing with all the things you're talking about, because I, a lot of what you talked about hit on areas that I think are really important. Um, You know, number one is I'm thinking about how you said you're, you know, you're not on Instagram, you're, you're not on Facebook, unless you're sharing something that you're doing that might be of interest to someone who is and might catch it and then maybe contact you personally or and that a lot of your both your professional and your interpersonal interactions are face to face on the ground. Um, I relate to that a lot. I, I spend more time on social media than I would like to. And yet I'm also very conscious of not having that be the way that I experience connection with people on a deeper level. So uh, I'm very much a person who insists upon texting for certain professional things. Great. But for friendship, I want to make the phone call. And, and it's interesting because I've, I feel like we're already getting a little bit of a resurgence from younger people. Like I think younger people have some um, like, there's some stereotypes about younger people that they're only into internet or games or, or being virtual. And in contrast to some of those stereotypes, I have been hearing from people that I work with here in Montana who are in their early 20s. They're now no longer using texting as much for, inter- for interpersonal and that they're saying, hey, pick up the phone and let's call or let's get together. But for professional Stuff, they're still, you know, just texting away really quick, you know, let's, you know, this is due here, or uh, let's meet up here to have this conversation. So there's a lot of fodder that people are chewing on about what its effects are in terms of how we organize ourselves, how we experience relationship, and how we organize our communities. So another thing that I was really excited to hear you mention, and that I was thinking about before we got on the call in how to possibly encompass this really, really major topic that we're attempting to talk about today. And the way to do that in my mind as well is through patterns. I was thinking in general about what are the patterns that encompass what's going on for us right now, globally and also locally, and patterns of value, patterns of successful community organizing, Patterns of successful teaching, patterns of change, patterns of connection, and how would I like box some of these details into those patterns? And so on a ground level, what I saw and what I still see is that people are feeling really angry. And and you may have said this, or I heard this out of what you're saying, Warren, and also maybe from you, Scott, is that you know, in your case, Scott, I'm hearing that people are already like so displaced and alienated from like the quote system and quote that they're, they're like, I'm out of here. I am, we're going to figure this out on our own outside of like any sort of structure that's existing purportedly to, to support, you know, a human system or a, an ecosystem, hopefully. And then Warren, I'm hearing from you that people are feeling alienated relationally also through this globalization and it got me thinking I I've been listening to so out of my like socioeconomic background is a lot of academics and then what I've been trying to do over the past 10 years since my graduate degree was basically take what I had learned about how we view resources and how we use them and and how that corresponds with like our personal empowerment and practice with or experiment with what I think works on the ground for me personally, and then also maybe have a little bit of a ripple effect come out of what I'm doing in my region. So in order to have this conversation, I went back to some of my academic connections and came upon this academic whose name is Raj Patel. And he's Indian, and he lives here in the United States now, and or I guess he's British Indian academic economist. And I watched a really interesting podcast by him that he gave to the London School of Economics years ago, I think, gosh, eight or 10 years ago. And the title of the YouTube video and his talk is the value of nothing. 
And he begins by saying, we know the price of everything and we, we know the value of nothing. That basically our current system, the prices don't tell us very much. Prices hide things. And so like the example he gives is like a hamburger at McDonald's, say it costs $2.50. And yet if the price of that hamburger actually took into account the rainforest needed converted to pasture for conventional beef, the price of that hamburger actually might be $200, for example. Yet all of that is really hidden for us when we make at that like point of purchase place. So we're like purchasing a lot of things and the prices of them are just set very arbitrarily. And uh, Warren, that reminds me just a little bit of what you were saying with like the globalization piece and kind of the disconnect. And yet there's all these other ways that we are paying for the price of that burger being $2.50. And I think, I mean, there's, there's myriad ways that we're paying for it. But just an example would be that the cost of obesity, I think we pay $1 in $5 is what we spend in the US for like the cost of obesity. And McDonald's isn't paying that price. Someone else is paying it or like a lot of other people are paying it. And similarly, he makes the argument as well that in northeastern China, basically, they've converted like this huge area of their landscape into a place where 95% of the Chinese grain can be grown. And it's turned into this incredible dust bowl that now there's these huge dust storms that blow over over all of China and are creating billions of dollars of healthcare costs for people. That is a result of basically to have like cheap grain, it's externalizing the cost outside of the actual companies that are like making the money um, and setting the prices of that grain to be low and also being probably subsidized by government to keep the prices even lower, that there are other people paying for that. There, there are environmental costs, but basically someone else is paying and it's not acknowledged, it's hidden what that cost is. So he also makes the argument too about reproductive labor, that that's like the lowest pay of all, that two thirds of the world's work is done by women and they make 25% of the wages. And he talks about that also being basically this subsidy, this externalized cost to what our low prices for things are, whether it be food or electronics or yeah, those things that get us to connect on Facebook, our iPads, what have you. And so in my mind, what we're seeing in terms of a lot of the anger is based on all of this unknown pricing, these externalities. I think the anger is coming from all of the people in the world who are actually paying that price. They don't understand the system that has created it, or maybe they understand it, but they don't know what to do about it. And so Warren, I heard a couple of things. One is like, you know, local and connect locally. And, you know, and I think that physical connection, you know, the hugging, the seeing people, the seeing their mouths move while they're talking, I think is really important to us from like a really like a deep level of like, just how we, how we are as humans. And then I also heard you talk about that we're a part of this system, like no matter if we want to be out of it or not, like we are affected by the system. And so I think about that when I think about this issue of hidden pricing, that I feel angry or that a homesteader feels angry or that a Trump supporter feels angry. And I think in some ways, a lot of us who are angry have a lot more in common than we know. There's very few people who are benefiting quite a bit and destroying our environment, destroying our landscape. And, and we're a part of that system in that we're buying things. And yet I think I would like to be better at articulating in a way that's practical for people to like organize in their communities, like how it is that they are connected to these larger patterns that are contributing to how it is that we feel disconnected or how we feel like things are unfair or why it is that we're sick and we can't afford to get well or why we don't have land that we can farm and raise our families on. Those are my thoughts right now. And what both of you have touched on that I keep coming back to from 
kind of living my life in this permaculture space because of producing the show for so long. Most of the people who I talk to are permaculture practitioners. And so that kind of does in some ways insulate me from the rest of our society because of the people who I interact with. But I think about Ethan Rowland's Eight Forms of Capital and talking about the different ways that we can connect and use what we have. But what I pull out of what both of you were saying is that is the focus that still exists on financial capital, on the costs for purchasing goods, on wages, and the way that economics impact us because of the availability of capital and the way that some folks can use that to extract resources from others. But that also, for me, ties into that idea that you proposed Warren of independence and that no one's really independent. And I very much agree with that because we are all interdependent on our social systems, on our economic system, on our food system, on the natural world and all of these different things, but that we've been able to use financial capital in order to purchase technology and use that money in order to feel as if we are independent and to remove a sense of interdependence with one another and reinforce our ability to disconnect by using technology and money to buy services rather than the relationships that we would have used previously in order to acquire what it is that we needed that we can text or chat or do these other things that don't require direct human interaction or even to hear someone's voice and yet still feel as if we interact with people, even though that that is diminished from what we might actually desire by spending time with people face to face. And I just wonder about what ways culturally we are able to insulate ourselves further and further from one another and break down those interconnections. One of the strategies that I use in my work, whether I'm in Liberia or Ethiopia or, or in Hong uh, Kong, France or in southern Germany or in the United States, I always begin the work with, with a shared definition of wealth. What is it that we actually see that is wealth? And, you know, if you have a GDP model as your shared wealth model, you know, that basically GDP is your shared wealth model, you know, you're basically saying that, you know, the more pharmaceuticals you use, the higher your level of wealth is. The more cancer there is, the higher level of wealth there is, because the more money exchanges hands. If we go to war off our soil, it, it's very well known and understood in economics that if you go to war off your land, off the place in which you dwell, your GDP will go up. If there's a big natural disaster that causes a lot of infrastructure uh, degradation, the GDP goes up. So here it is. We have a shared model of wealth that's saying it doesn't have to do with anything to do with health or well-being. It has to do with this exchange of currency. And so what I like to do is sit with community members and say, what is your definition of wealth? And like if I'm, uh, I was just doing this in Zimbabwe recently, and this last year I was, I was working in a community there. And as we started to go around and look at the definitions of, you know, people would say, oh, clean water, you know, clean water is really, you know, important. Then you start to say, you know, people would say, you know, a house to have good food, you know, all the things that I could think of that are important to me. And then somebody will bring up money as one of their definitions of wealth. And I'd say, well, wait a minute, is that actually what gives you wealth or is it an, an, one of, the, of a possible many instruments to gain the things that you would think as well? So if you actually put a dollar bill in front of you and that agreement with the dollar bill changes, what is, is that your wealth, that little piece of paper? Well, I have a notebook right here next to me that has more paper than I have in my pocket as dollar bills. So that, that paper becomes more valuable if the agreement changes on the dollar. And so this idea that the dollar itself is wealth is, is just not valid. Like, it can help us obtain different things that we see as wealth. So when we start to look at how we define what is truly wealthy, we might say that one avenue to get there might be at this time uh, the dollar sign. 
But in permaculture, we understand that for resilience and stability, we need redundancy. So you wouldn't only have that as your way to get food. If you have food and the only vehicle to get your food is a dollar sign, then you're vulnerable. And so this idea of coming up with shared values of wealth as a community, I think is a great starting point that actually gets us to talk about the real issues that are going on. It's like what you were saying, Jesse. It's like, I, I too believe that there are actually bigger binding issues than just anger. But I think angry, anger is one of them because, I mean, I think that's the first process. Uh, that's a, a disturbance that can cause evolution. Um, but we don't want to stay in anger. We want to transmute that ang anger or, or actually break it down into its component parts so it can be fuel for the next thing that's life-giving. And so this, I, I don't know, the, we had a PDC that was going on at Quell Springs, a permaculture design course at Quell Springs during the election. Uh, this last November. And it was interesting to watch everybody's reaction because, like, you know, people went to bed thinking, okay, you know, there's going to be a new president and it's going to be Hillary Clinton. And we woke up in the morning and it was Trump. And it happened that at the course, there was a father and son who voted for Trump. And so it was one of the biggest gifts. At first, there was this anger, this like collision of just like grief. You know, it's like this grief and grief, as we all know, cannot be solved. It can only be expressed. So that's something to really understand that grief is something you express, you don't solve. And so when when that was able to express itself, we then started to getting into a dialogue of, well, what is it that we have in common? We started to map out as a group, why is it that there could be this like differing view of how to vote politically, but yet we have so many things in common. And it ended up being one of the most important. I was so thankful to wake up that morning with Trump supporters by my side because it made it more sane for me to understand that they were voting out of their frustration for things. But in essence, we were defining wealth very similarly. We just took a different pathway by which we were moving with it. And I think that's where we can get strategic with patterning is understanding what we value as wealth. And then let's look at as communities at how we can then create that wealth and sustain that wealth and nurture that wealth for all the people that are there and all of the beings that are there, the ecologies that are there. And yeah, that just, uh, just came to mind as we were, uh, we're talking in our conversation that seems to be going all over the place, but keeps coming back to November. In terms of the eight forms of capital, I, I love that you both mentioned that. Warren, I'm really excited about you teaching going more into depth with the eight forms of capital at our course. And Scott, thank you for bringing it up for this. So I tend to, like I say, fluctuate between like this really large picture and then try to like understand how the smaller parts of it are hopefully shifting the larger picture. So with thinking about the value of money, I think that's a really important discussion. I, I also think about, yeah, like what is wealth? That's such a great question. And there's a holistic personal planning document that it starts with that question. Like how do you define wealth? And then it goes into also like, how do you define your resources and what are there? And it, it guides you through a process where you do like a, you actually draw a picture of a map and bring into play just for yourself visually and then you start to embody it like what are the resources maybe that are more creative outside of particularly financial and super important questions so anyway the philosopher jerry cohen says about money you know imagine a world where your freedoms are distributed to you on these little tickets and so you have like a ticket to fly to visit your grandmother or you have a ticket to get a a knee surgery um, or a ticket to, you know, purchase a hamburger and that these are distributed at random and you're not compelled to use any of these tickets, but if you want to use them, you can. And then if you choose to do something without your ticket, then the police will intervene. And so your rights are basically given to you on these tickets and that he posits that, you know, money is this generalized form of tickets. So we effectively create a society or we have created a society where the more money we have, it means the more liberty we have and that money is the right to have rights. 
or to avail ourselves to have rights. And so if we look at this idea of what is freedom, you know, I mean, I think what, what are our rights and how do we access those rights, where I think permaculture and specifically the eight forms of capital are super beneficial in like reevaluating or, or revaluing like how we have rights. It's very valuable because it looking at those eight forms helps us look at other ways of finding value and establishing value, both for like for doing something, but also just for like how wealthy am I? And I think a lot of permaculturists run into this. And I particularly think about a course I I did with Sepp Holzer. He's very famous for like always running into the law in Austria and he's very like proud of it. He's the rebel farmer. And I think in some ways permaculturalists, we are rebels. And um, I think a lot of us feel very rebellious in a lot of different ways. And I think that came out through, you know, getting back to these conversations that were happening up to the election during and now after, you know, and I find it very valuable. I love all the different perspectives. Like Warren, you were talking about, you know, that a lot of folks at this course you did were feeling sad about Trump and then that there was this family that said we, you know, we are a couple of people who we voted for Trump and told you why and that you had these these connections that you hadn't understood that areas of like the way you want to live that you value that actually resulted in their voting for Trump. I think it's really important that we like sit with that a little bit because those values could potentially lay the groundwork for like reforming a society that does value ecology more or that, you know, does bring back some of the technologies that worked for, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of years, Warren, that you mentioned. Well, I really appreciate the space that both of you have taken us through and how this conversation has been framed. And I'm wondering if we can take where we've gone throughout this and if either of you have some thoughts on what folks can do in order to begin this process of reconnection both with their local space and what sustains them i am really bolstered these days and hopeful in understanding that there there, there was a, a a theory what's called the theory of innovation was postulated back in the 1960s and it's this theory that tells us that basically to change an entire population, to change uh, an entire po body politic, so to speak, begins with the two and a half percent visionaries who are the people who are the edge dwellers. And oftentimes, like uh, you were sharing, Jesse, that, you know, what what, you know, uh, Sepp Holzer was saying and this like we're edge dwellers like a lot of us are the black sheep of our families or we're from families that are black sheep in their societies or in their communities and you start to realize that the two and a half percent basically come up with things that aren't seen before this has been proven over and over again in indigenous societies in western societies there's something innately human with it and then what happens is you have this two and a half percent who then is followed by what are called the early adopters. So you have the seven and a half percent are people who are more willing to adopt something new than the remaining 90%, so to speak. And, and these early adopters are people who are willing to dialogue. There are people who are willing to listen to two sides of a story rather than seeing things only as black and white, but seeing that there are, you know, a thousand shades of gray within that. And so then once the early adopters come on board with something, with this vision of whatever this is, then the 90 are what, are what are called the followers, that they'll basically follow. And for me, it gave me great hope because what it's saying to me is that we don't have to think like we've got to, you know, everybody in the world has to change at once, but I think we can be very strategic. Like we can start to look in answering your question, Scott, what can people do is to look for leverage points in your community to carry a vision forward into your community. And what is a leverage point? Well, in some of the work we're doing, it's, it's uh, working with Los Angeles County Sanitation District in upcycling their biosolids into a 14,000 acre regenerative farm. That, to me, is a huge leverage point that could lead to municipalities globally shifting how they deal with their biosolids. That's a leverage point. It could be that you have a neighbor who grows really good apples 
and you grow really good eggplant and you start an exchange of things that you're really good at or your soils are really good at. And that's a leverage point where you can start to come together. It might be something like what the work we're doing with USAID, USAID, which is, you know, this huge monolithic NGO. Well, basically, it's the U.S. government's way to feed billions of dollars into the NGOs globally that we're working with them in a process of training for resilience design. So working with all the people that train farmers on the ground to shift how they're, they're defining wealth in a community and, and, and bringing permaculture through this idea of resilience design into existing pathways to hundred or you know, millions of people globally. Those are the types of places we want to start working. What's a leverage point in your family? What's a leverage point in your own heart? What's a leverage point in your, in your family, in your community, in your greater watershed, in your, you know, your state, your national government, and then globally? And we need to work on multiple levels simultaneously. I don't think there's going to be a silver bullet. There's not a technology. There's not one answer. Permaculture is not the answer that's going to get us through this. Permaculture is a tool that will be a part of many tools in our toolkit that will help us to navigate these times that that are, you know, where there's a lot of feedback coming coming back to us socially and ecologically. And we're going to have to redesign the entire uh, landscape and social scapes to be able to navigate through these times. So those are just a few thoughts that I have. And I hope what comes out of that is that it's very it's a it's a hopeful time. But it's also a time where we're, we're, we need to feel the pressure of movement. We can't just sit back and wait for the government to collapse. Like if you're doing that, you're a part of the problem. I really believe that. If you're just sitting back and doing that. What I believe is that we need to engage one another and build relationships. And it's relationships with our land, relationships with each other, relationships with the healthy parts of ourselves that need grieving, the parts of ourselves that that need to find balance within us. Because it's hard to create balance if we don't even have balance within us. So I think it's really an important time right now to start to evolve from all the disturbances that are happening in the world and, and in ourselves. So, um, and, then, and also to do it in a joyful way. Um, Jesse and I were talking about, she was talking about her daughter and my granddaughter are the same age and just talking about how that kind of joy that they can bring to the world and their ability to experience joy and music and nature and diversity of species is something that we should be like, we should be celebrating with them. We shouldn't just be talking about the destruction of species. We should be celebrating the species that are here. We should be celebrating the things that, that bring music to our ears, the dong chorus of the birds. We need to be also living in a way that has beauty and grace. And I think that if we just approach it that it's the end of the world, I'm hunkering down, then, then the world will, it'll be the end of the world for you. In, in a way that I think is, is not healthy because I believe that we're hardwired to live in a beautiful way. And I, I believe that we're also hardwired to live in relationship, not just with the natural world, but with the, the natural part of the people that we share this, this journey with. And Jesse, would you like to close our interview with your final thoughts? Thank you, Warren. So resilient design, what a great, concept and it's really exciting to hear that it's being funded in some of the global work going on out there and I'm interested in in thinking about how it's being funded here in the U.S. as well. Working on multiple levels simultaneously, I think that's so important. Coming into this conversation, I mentioned I we tend to, I think in the U.S. in particular, and our political system, this idea of Democrats, Republicans, this binary, is it, it creates a false sense that it's just one or the other, black or white, and that we need to choose one thing in order to be correct, and it needs to be the correct thing. Uh, and I just think it's so false. I very much agree we need to work at multiple levels simultaneously. And I think if you feel 
sad or if you've taken a blow related to, you know, something going on politically or something in your own life, I think it's important to rest. I think we, we do cycle through resting periods. And for some of the folks who feel like they don't want to go on, I would encourage to consider it a resting period and then get up and keep doing what you do and learning and understanding those leverage points in your own community where you can connect up. I think here in Helena, what mine, what I've chosen to do since November is uh, continue to work on the Six Ward Garden Park here in Helena. We've, we, it's the first food forest, public food forest in Montana, one of, you know, 50 or more now that are across the United States. That's such a hopeful arena, you know, not in and of itself going to save the world and and save the food crisis or the environment, but it's a part of it. And so when I see our water capture system on that park and shifting it so that, you know, here in Helena, we get 11 inches of water and parts of that park feel like they're getting 33 inches and seeing, knowing that our city engineers helped troubleshoot how to do all of that and are now considering it for the future in terms of our own infrastructure planning, that that's going to feed into this larger process is very, very hopeful. And, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot for a while is the concept of play and having fun and being joyful. I think if you are a parent who enjoys being a parent or a grandparent or an uncle, an aunt, or a friend of someone who has children. If you can enjoy children at all, I find that I am playing a lot more. I'm a single mother, but I also have a good co-parenting relationship. And I'm in a community that uh, I've worked really hard to have strong connections and networks with other parents um, where we can support each other. And so I am able to have quite a bit of fun with my daughter, incorporating also this play with nature into my work. So this community-supported apothecary where I'm able to learn about herbal remedies and also learn about my own local resources in terms of what can grow here, what's appropriate for the bioregion, and also, you know, ginger's great, cinnamon's great, but they don't grow here in Montana, and so what are some of the plants that I can learn about that have similar effects but are growing right here, and being able to explore that by having a little apothecary where people are supporting me a little bit financially while I'm on this journey was a really great leverage point for me in order to be able to to play and have fun and, and be out in the garden and feel like I have time for that. The research supports, if you're someone that feels guilty about having fun when there's all this serious stuff going on, know that the research shows that the more fun you have, actually the more productive you are, most likely. So we have to be having fun. And I also saw another reference from this Raj Patel. He talks about a project he worked on in Malawi where children were very malnourished in a particular region and the women started growing a higher protein density plant in their communities. And actually the, the malnutrition went higher and they didn't understand it for a little while. But what they realized is that the women were in order to produce this higher protein plant, they were actually not getting to some of the other really important duties that they had that that helped their children to um, have good nutrition. And so they started to talk with the men about cooking and farming. And in that particular region, it was not a, you know, culturally men did not farm, nor did they cook. And so they had to start shifting that culture. And to just talk alone or to lecture was not doing it. And what they ended up doing and what inevitably ended up being successful was they created games and contests, cooking contests. And I mean, these, it was fun. And it was in some ways, it can seem like such a simplistic notion. And yet over the course of a few years, through play and through people getting to kind of step out of their normal roles through play and have discussions and maybe say things that they normally wouldn't in that setting, there was a tremendous shift and 
the men started cooking and the malnutrition in this particular region ended up going down quite a bit for that area for the children. And so just another example of, you know, let's not feel in sad times that we shouldn't play. We must always play. And there's such wonderful ways to do that and have a positive impact. And I think through a lot of permaculture, permaculture can encourage us to do that. I think we can find that playtime within the ethics of earth care, people care, fair share. Well, thank you both for joining me today from truly all over the globe to have this conversation and share these thoughts and ideas with the world at large. Well, thank you, Scott. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead, Warren. No, no, it's, 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 it's lovely to have this conversation with the both of you. And I'm just uh, appreciative that it all worked out technologically for me to be able to be on this from Ethiopia. And it's pretty amazing to have these conversations, to be able to have them. And so um, thank you for hosting the show that you do um, and creating the opportunity and the space for, the, for these important discussions to have happen. And hopefully, maybe there was little bits that your listeners could take from that would maybe inspire conversations in their family and their community as well. So thanks for having me. Thank you, Warren. Thank you, Scott. I am also grateful for technology so that we could have had this conversation. And I really appreciate your time and and Scott for you in providing this venue for these conversations. And that was Jesse Peterson and Warren Brush. You can find out more about Jesse at InsideEdgeDesign.com and Warren at QuailSprings.org. And of course, I'll include links to that in the show notes. This was a different conversation for me because I don't normally delve into politics like this. Every once in a while, like with a conversation with Peter Michael Bauer, some of my personal perspectives may emerge. But there's something about, as Jason Gadeski reminds me, about digging in deep, about getting beyond the generalities. And, and because of that, I at least wanted to start having this conversation today, because the political and the social realm are places that we will need to do work as permaculture practitioners in the future. I also see that I have particular places where I am a specialist, and those are my areas of interest. And so I don't know that I can really comment more beyond the discussion and some of the opinions that were shared today. And I'd like to know from you what your perspectives are, from where you are in the world, because I know there are folks who listen from every corner of the globe. And so I'd really like your feedback to leave a comment in the show notes or to send me an email. Give me a call. I just, I don't know enough about this to go beyond what you heard today, but I'd like to know more. So if you can give me a call, 717-827-6266, send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If for some reason those aren't convenient, you can drop a letter in the mail, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. And as kind of a follow-up to this, there are some folks who have approached me who want to have more conversations about permaculture and politics. If that's something that you're interested in or that you don't want to hear on this show, I'd like to know. Uh, so that I can kind of plan more of where things will lead in the future. And again, you can leave a comment or get in touch with me by those other means. From here, the next episode out on April 17th for Patreon listeners and for general release on April 20th is the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook, a conversation with Andrew Mefford. Until the next time, look for those patterns and those leverage points to create the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.